This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. Hey, welcome back to uh, Asking for a Friend. Uh, it's our attempt to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes together and just ask some questions that may not be socially acceptable. So we're going to ask them on behalf of our friend, right? Basically, Solomon is saying, there's these things that we all think, and we think we shouldn't think those things, and we feel bad for having these thoughts and questions inside our heart, as if it says we're a bad person or a bad believer. Solomon says, that's baloney, let's just talk about it, because we all think those things. We all wonder, is there any point to life, and why is life so hard, and why do I feel alone, and and why does money bring out the worst in us? He just addresses all of these things as we walk through Ecclesiastes together, He's commenting on all of them. Some of them he solves. Some of them he just acknowledges. So last week is one of those that he, he kind of just acknowledged. Because last week he addressed the, the idea of, of bad things happening to good people. Which is a question that we all ask. And, and Solomon really undermines the basis for the whole question. What do you mean why do bad things happen to good people? That's assuming that there's anybody who is ever really, really good. Now, I'm not trying to disparage you know, any of our any of our saints or your family members who have passed on, I'm not at all saying they weren't good people. But what Solomon addresses, what he really attacks is the idea that any of us can be good enough to earn God's favor and trinkets and, 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 uh, and eternal blessings just because we're really good people. Basically what he's addressing is what we call Christian karma. You know, karma says what goes around comes around. Christians kind of had the same idea. They just put a little bit of a, of a Jesus spin on it and says, hey, if you live a good life, then Jesus will shower you with trinkets and joy and food and happiness and long life. And, and uh, it's, it's just, I've said before, I'm allergic to that kind of talk. It makes me want to vomit. To be, to be direct, I hate it. I have a lot of problems with it, specifically the Bible. The idea that if you're good and faithful, that God will expand your territory. You know, we think of people like John the Baptist. He was good, he was faithful, and he got his head cut off. If anything, his territory was shrunk a little bit, right? Jeremiah got beaten up naked, thrown into a ditch. Moses never got in to see the promised land. Half the prophets in the Old Testament got sawed in half, cut. Jesus got beat half to death, stripped naked, hung up on a cross where he suffocated to death. So this idea that if we're good, this Christian karma, what goes around comes around. If you're good, God will treat you good down here on earth. It's just baloney. It's just ridiculous. The, the message of the Bible is not. This is, I know it's a heavy intro, but it's kind of a heavy topic, and we need to say this to set up what Solomon's going to say next. The message of the Bible is not. If you're good and faithful, then God will give you a good, faithful, happy life down here. He might, but that's not what the Bible says. The message of the Bible is, Jesus is enough. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the season of life, the gospel says Jesus is always enough. Jesus plus anything doesn't make life better. Jesus is enough. And and here's why that's so important that we see this as an encouraging way, in, in, in an encouraging thing. Listen to me on this, listen. We cannot use our circumstances as an indicator of whether we are in God's will or not. Are you tracking with me on that? This is, this, is enli- this is refreshing, liberating news. 
Your circumstances are not an indicator of whether you are inside of God's will or not. That's good news because when you have a bad season, if anything, it does not mean that you're outside of God's will. Solomon makes that clear over and over and over, especially in last week's sermon. When you're having a bad season, a bad day, a bad, a bad year, Solomon doesn't offer an explanation as to what it does mean. Sometimes we don't figure that out. But one thing we can know, it doesn't mean that God forgot about you. Your circumstances are not an indicator of whether you are inside God's will or not. Jesus says it clearly here, Matthew 5. For he, meaning God, God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. Everybody gets the same sun. Everybody gets the same rain. Whether they're good or bad, evil or, you know, it's all the same. And if you read that and you think, that's frustrating. Sometimes that's depressing. Solomon would say, it is. He would agree with you. These, the, these Ecclesiastic, this book of Ecclesiastes, it's really Solomon's memoirs. We've said that before, right? This is the end of his life. He's old. He's learned a lot of stuff. He's too old to bother with having a filter or sugarcoating anything. He just says it like it is. And sometimes the things that he says, you can just smell the frustration just rising off of what Solomon has given us here. And what I love about Ecclesiastes is that he doesn't mask it. He just says it. He just says the things that we all think, even though we wonder if we should think those things. It's so brutally honest, and I love that book for it. You can see this tension and this frustration in chapter 9, verse 1. It's the last verse we did last week, but it summarizes the whole, the whole sermon last week, this idea of Christian karma, and it sets us up for what we're going to say next. Look at this, chapter 9, verse 1. Solomon says, This too are carefully explored, even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor or not. See that? Good and bad people, they're all, you know, they're in God's hands, but nobody knows whether God's going to show them favor or he's going to bless them with trinkets and joy and happiness or not. Solomon is acknowledging the frustration of living a good, godly life. Listen. And still not having things play out the way you want. But at the same time, this is what is so vital for our, our contentment and our faith. At the same time, Solomon's saying, that's so frustrating. But it doesn't mean that God's not in control. Solomon, through all of his honesty about the frustration of chaos in life, Solomon never denies God's providence, ever. Providence simply means that God's on the throne. Solomon never denies that. Providence means whatever comes to you has first passed through God's hands. It simply means nothing gets to you that catches God by surprise. You, never, you can never go to God with this update on your life and have God like, whoa, wait a minute, what? You're right, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Let's think, what do we do next? No, he's on the throne. And, and Solomon says both of these things, bad things happen to good people and I hate it. God's in control. And then he just moves on. He doesn't resolve it. He just lets the tension sit there. If anything... He compounds it. He makes it even more frustrating, or at least he adds to the tension with what he's going to say this week. If we want more proof, we can't look at our life, we can't look around at our circumstances during this life to tell whether we're in you know, God's blessing and, and, and in God's will or not. If, if your life 
is not enough to show you that I, I don't know. Then Solomon says, consider your death. Because that doesn't help anything either. Hey, the, the rain falls on the good people, rain falls on the bad people, and everybody dies. Everybody dies. That's also not an indicator of whether you are in God's will or not. And I want you, before we dig into this, I want you to see that as encouraging. Because it means you're not forgotten. When, when death is creeping, creeping up on, on your doorstep or the doorstep of someone that you love, it doesn't mean that you're outside of God's will. Solomon wants us to see that. And he's going to force us to a point where we have to make a decision about how we're going to view death today. So let's just dig into it. I would encourage you to have your Bibles open, your app open, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2. We finished verse 1 last week. He says, The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners. And people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. So now we're at the, the crescendo of Solomon's discourse on futility. Right? He's going to unpack today this topic that we most want to run from and not discuss and kind of put into the corner and, and leave it over there. He's just going to head on talk about death. Which in itself is a word that we don't always like to, to use. We don't usually say it as clearly as she died. It, instead, we, we try to kind of sanitize it with dainty terms like, well, they passed away, they moved on, they fell asleep, they went to a better place. Solomon says, you mean she's dead? Like dead? That's what happened, dead. And he's, his, bluntness, or his bluntness is going to force us to make a decision about what that means. Woody Allen summarized pretty well the view that many of us have about death. He says, hey, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Humorous, but the way many of us think. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. What Solomon wants us to see about death is that it's not an accident. It's an appointment. Let me say that again. Death is not an accident. Death is an appointment. It's unavoidable. He's just stating the obvious. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as each person is destined to die once, after that comes judgment. That means there's no reincarnation. There's no getting out of earth alive. The death rate is one per person. That's all he's saying. Right? Eat kale chips, drink bottled water, take your vitamins, wear your seatbelt, exercise, do a bunch of cardio, you're still going to die. That's all he's saying. You're still going to die. And he's not really trying to make us feel better about it. He's not trying to take away our sadness about death. He's also not trying to, to take away our right to feel sad. He's just saying it like it is. Death, while an inevitable appointment for all of us, is still a, a cancer on our soul. Both things are true. It happens to everyone and it stinks. It really stinks. The human soul was not designed to die. We're not designed to die. And so dying will never feel natural. It's not natural. The Bible paints that picture clearly. We're going to get to that today. Death is not okay because we were not designed to die. It's going to happen to all of us now, but we weren't designed that way. And so it's always going to feel awkward, frustrating, depressing, 
unnerving, it's going to stink. To put it one way, death is our enemy, but the glimmer of hope is that death is the last enemy you will ever have to face. Death is our enemy, but it is the last enemy we will ever have to face. And so the, the point of the question, the question this week is, well, then what's the point of death? That's our ninth question that we're asking for a friend. Death, what's the point? What should I learn from it? Is there anything to learn from it? There seems to be this idea, and I don't disagree, that if you and I knew the date and the time of our death, then maybe we would live our lives a little differently. We, maybe we would be more intentional one way or the other about the way we spend our time, the kind of things we say to people, the, the sort of thoughts that we allow to pass through our head. Maybe if we knew when we were going to die, that might be changed, for better or for worse. Uh, Tim McGraw, in a song that was extremely popular you know, 15 years ago or so, says it really well. These lyrics say, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me, and a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. I asked him, when it sank in that this might be the real end, how did it hit you when you get that kind of news? He goes on, he says, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. I became a friend a friend would like to have. All of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition. I went three times that year, I lost my dad. I finally read the good book and I took a long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. Solomon seems to accept this, that the reality of our death does have an impact on the way we live our life. It does. So as we say, death, what's the point? Well, depending on your worldview, it's either going to, to show you that that you really think life is meaningless or death can make life meaningful. He's going to explore both of these today. Especially depending on what you think about God. When you view the inevitability of death, it's going to reveal to you whether you think it makes your life meaningless or whether you think it makes your life meaningful. First of all, as we move through chapter 9, he's going to address the meaningless view. Look at what he says in the next verse. Continuing to, to climb into this pit of despair, Solomon says, it seems so wrong. You feel that frustration? It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course for they have no hope. There's nothing ahead but death anyway. You know, as, a, as a pastor who has a front row seat to how people often deal with death, I, see, I think I've discovered a couple things. One of them is that death does not create problems. It just reveals them. Right? The, the, if they're already there, death is going to reveal them. Kind of like an x-ray, death lets us see straight into our heart. When we're forced to deal with the, the mortality of our loved ones, we'll say that, it either brings out the best in you or it brings out the worst. I've seen it bring families together that haven't talked in years. And I've seen the death of a loved one drive them apart. Either way, it's like an x-ray that just kind of cuts into and exposes what's, what's really beneath. We either become generous, loving, accepting, forgiving, and gracious, 
or, or we become cranky and hateful and greedy. Well, you know, he wanted me to have this. And so I'm not going to talk to you for the rest of my life because this trinket was mine. Or, you know, I hate the fact that this funeral is the first time I've talked to you in four years. Life's too short. Can we just move on? It, it's an x-ray that that's, just goes straight into and lets us see the, the true motives of our heart. Because when it comes down to our death, our own death, not just our loved ones, but our own death, if we think life is meaningless, if we take the meaningless view, then we'll do anything other than repent to come to grips with the fact that we're going to die. Let me say that again. When it comes to the death of a loved one, it reveals what's really in our heart. If what's in our heart is this meaningless view of life and nothing really matters anyway, then when we have to deal with our own death, we will do absolutely anything other than repent to try to come to grips with it. We will, we will sin and indulge and run as far away as we can. Right? If I know, hey, I've got two months to live and I think life is meaningless anyway, I'm going to live it up, I'm going to party on, dude, as, as great as I can. Let me say that again. This is important. The way you actually live your life tells you what you think about death. It's not, it's not the things you say about God. right? It's not the words you say to lip service. It's your follow-through. It's your actions that really reveal your heart. Especially when you have to come to grips with your own death and your own mortality. Rick Warren has said, you only believe the parts of the Bible that you do. The rest of the stuff that you don't get around to doing, it's because you really don't have a conviction about it. You really don't believe it. And, and this is important because Jesus' entire teaching, his whole ministry, all of his sermons can be summed up in this one verse here. Check this out. Matthew 3, 2. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's his entire ministry. Repent of your sins and turn to God, the kingdom of heaven is near. So looking back on your own life, here's the litmus test. Looking back on your life, do the things you do, the way you respond to people around you, the way you respond to yourself, is it a life that's marked by repentance? Is it a life that says, hey, I know my days down here are numbered, I know death is inevitable, I know there's some meaning beyond this, and so my life is marked by repentance, by constantly turning away from sin and doing the best I can with what I have to turn towards Jesus. When you're wrong, let's be specific. Let's just, let's just put a fine edge on it. When you're wrong, do you say so? That's repentance. When you're wrong, do you say so? Or do you just get angry and emotional and blame other people and make it about your feelings instead of the people that you hurt? When you have an opportunity to help, do you? When you help, when you can help, do you? Or do you just cross the street and make an excuse for why you're going to walk on by and, and not help someone out of a tough spot? Are you generous? Do you really believe that you receive so you can give, that we get so we can give? Do you really believe that? Is your life, if people look at your life, do they say, hey, that person, as flawed as they are, is doing the best they can to love God and love people? Or is your life marked by self-indulgence, looking out for number one? Are you doing the best you can as you walk through life and respond to it to continually turn from sin and repent because you know the kingdom of heaven is near, death is coming. Is your life marked by repentance? 
you know, I, I would encourage you. I do a lot of funerals. I, I spend probably a little bit more time in cemeteries than most people do. But in a, in a way, it's refreshing. Because every time I go back to a cemetery, I notice that the dates on those tombstones are catching up to me. Now, when you're a kid, if you spend any time in a cemetery, the dates, the tombstones, the, none of that means anything to you. But the older you get, the, the more you go back, the more you realize those dates on those tombstones, pretty soon those dates will be my dates. They're catching up to me. And this is why Jesus came preaching one consistent message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, if you think that life is meaningless, that message means nothing to you, and your life and your actions are an indicator of that. Solomon goes on, probably reaching the depth of, of, of his depressive comments in this book. This is just the, the complete bottom of his commentary on the futility of life. Solomon utters what are probably the most depressing words in the entire book. Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 4. There's only hope for the living. As they say, it's better to be a live, live dog than a dead lion. The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, it's all gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. Now, these words, as depressing as they sound, are true. Solomon is just saying true things. Now, depending on where you stand on the question of death, what's the point? Is life meaningless or meaningful? These true words may not tell the whole story of your existence. But they are at least partially true. Let's, let's walk through kind of briefly and just break down these verses before we flip over to the more optimistic, meaningful view of death. But I think it's worth repeating that Solomon is at that age of life where he just doesn't care whether you're going to invite him back for dinner or not. Right? He doesn't mix words. And, and we all know those people that as they get older, the, the filters just kind of fall off and they just say it. They just say how they feel. That's exactly what Solomon is saying here. And, and first of all, he's just telling us directly, everyone's fate is sealed at the moment of their death. That's kind of an unsettling comment. Let me say it again. The moment you exhale your last breath, you have a permanent reservation in either heaven or hell. It's sealed. Eternity is sealed at death. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable because you don't want to go to, to hell, then I would say then don't go there. Hell's hot. It's uncomfortable. Don't go there. There's a way around that, and we'll get back to that here in just a minute. But what Solomon's saying is very simple. When you're dead, you can no longer repent. It's the one vital thing we have to do here on earth. We have to repent, turn from God, turn to Jesus. Once you're dead, you can't do that anymore. That's all he's saying. If we go through these, verses 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4, he just tells us what we all know, dogs are better than cats. That's what verse 4 says. Gospel truths, dogs are better than cats. Verse 5, he gives us another simple truth. One day you're going to die. And I know I sound like a broken record, but if I do, it's because Solomon sounds like a broken record, and he wants us to get this. So he's going to repeat it over and over. One day you're going to die. We're going to dress you up. We're going to put some makeup on your face. We're going to put you in a box. We're going to put that box in the ground. We're going to throw some dirt on top of it, and then we're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad and kind of talk about you while we're trying to, to think about what we have to do at our next appointment. And then... Give two or three more generations. Everyone who had any contact with you, they're going to die as well. And nobody's going to remember you. It's going to be, remember old, uh, duh, what's his name? Duh, duh, who? Yeah, you know, like, uh, like uh, great-grandpa so-and-so. 
No. No idea who you're talking about. What time's lunch? It's just reality. Furthermore, Solomon continues, not to mince words, verse 6, he basically says, look, not only will death remove any opportunities for you to affect your eternity, it's also going to remove all of your opportunities to impact your life down here on earth as well. He's just saying, verse 6, dead people cannot continue loving, hating, hugging, apologizing. Only the living people can do that. That's it. So Solomon's just saying, make it count. Carpe diem, seize the day. He's painting a dismal picture of the opportunities we lose once we die. Just saying, make it count. There's a glimmer of hope, though, in verse 6. Look at the ESV version of verse 6. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done. What's the phrase? Under the sun. All that is done under the sun. Now, I think that at least begs the question, what about over the sun? If Solomon's going to make a contrast here, then maybe he's doing it on purpose, and I think he is, and we'll get back to that in a minute. But Solomon's just saying right here, look, for better or for worse, listen to me, because this is insanely practical. Listen. For better or for worse, you and I are going to spend a lot of time down here on earth loving, hating, and being jealous. Solomon wants us to pause long enough to ask, am I spending my emotions in the right way? Whose affection are you trying to win right now? And how's that working for you? Who are you mad at right now? And is that anger helping you or hurting you? How much spot time do you spend wanting what you don't have? And is that robbing you of the joy that comes from enjoying what you do have? Solomon is just saying, make it count. If you're going to expel emotions and energy, and you are because you're alive, then, then do so on purpose. Do so in a way, this is what matters, Christian. Do so in a way that's consistent with the conviction that you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven isn't near. It's close. Expend your emotions and your energy in a way that says, I know death is coming, it's inevitable, it's creeping up on me, and so I want to do this on purpose. He's just simply saying, don't read into it anymore. When you die, you don't have any more part to play under the sun. However, that doesn't take away the fact that we're going to be somewhere over the sun. And we, I've said this before, and I, and I want you to get this perspective. I'm going to say it again. If God is to be believed, put down your Bible, stop what you're doing, listen to this. If God is to be believed, when you die... You don't stop being you. You're still you. That's because, listen, you don't have a soul. You are a soul with a physical body just stapled on top of it. I need you to invert that and see how much we have flipped the idea here on earth. Right? We, we act like we're just this body with a soul attached to it. This body is only going to last 80, 90 years if you're lucky. It gave my sister 22 years. That's it. That's it. You are a soul with the body just stapled to it for a while. The soul is designed to live forever. The body's not, hence death. But once you breathe your last, breathe your last breath in this body, this broken down body is ripped off of that soul, that soul continues going as a specific version of you. And, and that's my point. All that loving, all that hating, all that jealousy, it's making you and me into a very specific kind of person. 
And so the question Solomon wants us to ask, he's forcing us to make this, this, this decision. Is the kind of soul that I'm creating, is that the soul I want to be for eternity? I may have no longer you know, impact down here under the sun, but my soul is going to go on over the sun. Is it the kind of soul I want to inhabit forever? Am I making myself into a more joyful person? Loving, hating, being jealous, forgiving, not forgiving, whatever. It's crafting you into a specific kind of person. Is it the kind of person you want it to be? All right, Solomon moves on a little bit from the, uh, a lot. He moves on from the, the uh, depressing, you know, life can be meaningless view. And he kind of flips the script and he shows us how death can make life meaningful. It's going to make it one or the other. But let's look at these next verses because he's going to show us now how death can make life uh, meaningful. Sorry, I lost my place. Um, he's going to show us in short, if you want to live a life, given what we just said, if you want to live a life that is only improved by your death, I know that idea sounds weird. If you want to live a life that actually gets better when you die, then the way you live your life just needs to be practiced for heaven. And check this out, because this is insanely practical and it's good news. Look, look at his prescription for those of us who say, you know, I want my death to make my life meaningful. He says, okay. Uh, verses 7 through 10. He says, so go ahead. Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. Whatever you do, do well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. All right, let's briefly break these verses down. Here's Solomon's prescription to make life meaningful, to let your death improve your soul. And it's worth pointing out there, the word go in verse 7, that's grammatically structured as a command. So Solomon's not giving a suggestion here. He's telling us, believers, you will go do this. This is what believers do. This is how, listen church, this is good news. This is how believers practice for heaven. Verse 7, he, he tells us basically, have joyful, leisurely celebrations with your family and friends. Slow down and throw a really good party with good wine and good food. Not bologna sandwiches and Kool-Aid. Hey, if you, to the extent that you can, good food. Slow down and enjoy life. Throw a party. Throw another one. Leisurely, joyful conversations where you sit around and you visit with your friends and family on purpose. And you do it over good food and good wine. And don't read too much into that. Because right? there are seasons, in, in, uh, certainly in, in our marriage, where good food and good wine was hamburger helper and strawberry soda. All right, baby, that's good stuff, right? It's good, it's good stuff. Don't, don't read too much into this. Wealth is not having nice things to enjoy. Wealth is enjoying the things you have. And that's what Solomon's telling us to do here. Slow down. Have good leisurely celebrations with your family. He goes on verse 8. Dress up in something nice that has buttons and a collar. Right? Not sweatpants and pajamas. And our culture has just devolved and we, we can go to, you know, out in public in our pajamas. 
Solomon says, come on, especially guys, like, put on something nice. Maybe a shirt with buttons. Maybe tuck it in. Maybe some clothing that are not jeans or sweatpants. Maybe put on a little cologne. You like it when your wife smells good, so smell good. Wash your hair. Don't put a ball cap to hide the three-day-old bath you got going on. Solomon says, dress nicely. Suit up. You know, suit up and look good. Verse 9, embrace your spouse and dive deeply into the joy of that relationship. Have fun. Guys, this means exactly what you want it to mean. It does. Enjoy your wife. Take joy from that relationship. To be sure, water that garden and keep that grass green so that she enjoys it as well. Wife, be someone that your husband wants to water. But if, if you have that mutual beneficial relationship where you look at your marriage as something to be enjoyed, man, have at it. Solomon says, that's your gift. Treat it as a gift. Take care of it as a gift. And hey, have fun. Have fun. And he says, verse 10, work really hard to be really good at something. Make your labor down here under the sun. Make it a contribution. Work hard to be good at something. You can see how this is contrasted with many contemporary values. Right? Where, where supper is a, you know, a McDonald's in your car on your, as you're rushing off to something else. We wear you know, sweatpants or shorts and flip-flops out in public to a nice appointment somewhere. As opposed to embracing a, a relationship with our spouse, it's just sort of a love the one you're with, live-in relationship, casual sex sort of thing. Instead of working really hard to be good at your job, hey, if you can cheat, cheat, man. Take the easy way. Relax. Be lazy. Solomon says, that's not practice for heaven. And what all of you know is that's not fulfilling anyway. If there's any joy in that, it's extremely short-lived. This is the long game. And it's not a prescription for, for a, a boring, mundane life. Solomon says, get dressed up really nice and eat really good food and drink good wine. And Here, let me, let me read you the... Uh, the, the message translation of this. I love this paraphrase. I love the message in many ways. Here's what Eugene Peterson says about these verses. He translates them as, Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Drink festively every morning. Or dress festively every morning. Hey, drink maybe. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Now, if you didn't notice, this probably paints a different picture of God than the one that many of you may have grown up with. We covered this in detail back in the second, the second uh, chapter of Ecclesiastes, week two, where many of us, from a church perspective, think that, that God wants us to be holy by taking all the fun things out of our life. Holiness by subtraction. Don't do this, don't do that, don't smile, because if you smile, you might laugh. If you laugh, you might have fun. Turn down the music. That's the God that many of us may have grown up knowing. Like this big cosmic killjoy with a buzzer or a stun gun telling you, hey, you're going to go to church and you're going to pray or I'm going to kill you. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God the Bible pictures. The prescription that he has for making life meaningful is to find pleasure and joy in everyday moments. Be intentional about it. Do it on purpose. This is extremely practical guidance. We can do this. My wife and I experienced this firsthand. We went to Rome for our anniversary. This is a picture of us in Rome. We got up every day. 
when we wanted to. We put on nice clothes. We took our time going down to breakfast. We took even more time eating breakfast on our own schedule. We had a, a leisurely walk around the city at our own pace. If we wanted to take a nap in the afternoon, we took a nap in the afternoon. Then we put on even nicer clothes for the evening and we went out for even better food and good wine. At least she had the good wine, I had good beer, because America. We, we made this verse insanely practical and, and, we, and our, our marriage was enriched for it. Joy was just simmering off of that entire trip. Not frustration. We had to rush and do this and this and this, but just joy, happiness, and contentment. I'll say it again. Wealth and happiness is not having nice things to enjoy. It's enjoying the things you have. Because the message of the Bible is that Jesus is enough, regardless of the circumstance. All right, Solomon is trying to force us to make a decision. Will your death make your life meaningless or meaningful? What's the point of death? Is it going to make your life have meaning or is it just going to validate the fact that it's been meaningless the entire time? To force us to make that decision, so far he's shown us very clearly death is inevitable. It's unavoidable. And now to further force the question, he's going to do one more thing briefly. He's going to show us not only is death inevitable, but life is unpredictable. You can't predict what's going to happen in life. He goes on, verse 11 and 12. I've observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner does not always win the race, and the strongest warrior does not always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. Those who are educated do not always lead successful lives. It's all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. People can never predict when hard times might come. Like fish in a net or birds in a trap, people are caught by sudden tragedy. Previously, we began by saying that Solomon is telling us our circumstances are no indicator of God's favor. Our circumstances are no indicator of God's favor. We can't look at what we're going through to determine whether we're in God's will or not. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Don't look at your circumstances as a gauge for whether you're in God's will or not. Now he's telling us, in his typical cranky senior citizen sort of way, also, your ability is no indicator of whether you're going to have success or whether you're going to live a long life. Your abilities are no indicator of that. Maybe you're smart, good for you. It might not work out for, for you. Maybe you're fast, good for you. You might not win the race. Maybe you're strong, good for you. You might still lose the battle. Maybe. Solomon's saying, we don't know. We just don't know. He's going to go on at the rest of this chapter, verses 13 to the end of it, and he's going to tell a little story to further illustrate how you can be smart and wise and good and it still not work out for you. We're not going to go there, but you can, you can read the, the little parable at the end of the chapter that just illustrates all this. But here's what he wants us to know. He's driving this in over and over and over. Solomon wants us to know, listen, life on earth is not a riddle that you can solve. It's not a riddle you can solve. Is that frustrating? Yes. Unsettling? Yes. Sometimes depressing? Absolutely. Also, it's true. It's true. Just like you, I wish I always knew which, which lever to pull to make the weather nice and to take away my kids cold. I, I wish I knew which, which button to push that would always have the wind at my back and the people around me nice and, and smelling good and, and all the cats out of my way. I, I wish I knew that. I wish I always knew the words to say that would, that would make the pain go away and, and life get better. 
I wish I knew that. I know you do too. But sometimes we just don't. Sometimes we just don't. And the wisest among us know that they need to admit their own ignorance. Solomon's reminding us of this. Because there's nothing worse than a sophomore in college who's read a few books and all of a sudden knows everything. Right? If you've been through college, you were that guy. I guarantee you that you were. I was. You read a few books and you know everything. But now on the other side of it, the older you get, the more you realize how little you know. The more knowledge you accumulate, the more it points to how much you don't know. The more, the more questions you answer, even more questions it opens up that need to be answered. The older you get, the more you know how much you don't know. So what do you do about all this unsettling, yeah, death is unavoidable, I get that. Life is unpredictable. I guess you're right, I get that too. So what do we do? Well, Solomon would remind us that Ecclesiastes is not a, a solution manual. It's not a book with all the answers. It's a survival book. You, you need to know that about Ecclesiastes. It's a book that tells you how to stay alive. It doesn't give you all the answers. That's not his intent. If anything, he tells us that's not possible. But he does tell us how to stay alive. It's not a book we read. Let's say it again. Ecclesiastes is not a book we read to get all of the answers. It's a book we read that tells us how to live faithfully during our few years down here under the sun in the midst of all the chaos and the frustration and the bad seasons of life. It reminds us how much we don't know and Solomon's intent in doing that is to drive us to faith in the God who does know. What Solomon is doing is he's working to disassemble the faith we have in ourselves. He's trying to take that apart, to dismantle it, and then put it back together in faith in God. In another book that Solomon wrote, he says exactly that, and he says it beautifully in Proverbs. He wrote this book also, and Solomon says, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. So in the midst of all this death, Solomon wants us to be driven back to that. Because as Christians, we already know this, but I want to say it again. Christians, we don't live by answers and explanations. We live by faith. Christians don't live by explanations. Christians live by faith. Now, to be sure, answers help. If I can choose between having an answer and not having an answer, I always want to be explained to how things are going to work out. I always want to know. But the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, is telling us that's not always going to happen. It's not. You can't always have the answers. So lean into God when you don't. Realize how limited your time is here on earth. Death is unavoidable. Life is unpredictable. Let's close by saying one more thing about death. I'm almost done. This is brief. We've been asking, what's the point of death anyway? Let me briefly hit it from one more angle and ask, where does death come from? Why do we die to begin with? We've been saying all morning that we're not made to die. We're made to live forever. Right? So what went wrong along the way where all of a sudden we have to die and deal with this unnatural concept of death. What went wrong? Well, the Bible makes that clear. Paul tells us in uh, Romans 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Sin is the cause of death. It's the cause of, of physical death, to be sure. But, but more importantly, more long-lasting, it's the cause of emotional death and spiritual death. Sin is the, is the 
plague of cancer on our souls that keeps us from having abundant, joyful life. How do you get rid of that plague? How do you get rid of that cancer of sin that will not only kill your body, but will kill your soul and your emotions? Well, to get rid of that death, you have to get rid of that sin. And Paul keeps going on to tell us how that happens. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, the only way to make your life meaningful is to get rid of the curse of sin that makes everything feel so meaningless. That's the only way so that, that when you die, you can say, my death didn't just prove that everything was meaningless. My death actually improved my life. It made things meaningful. The only way to do that is to remove the curse of sin. Now, the good news is that's exactly the offer that Jesus makes for us. It's the only offer that Jesus makes. Look at John 10. Almost done. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. Life to the fullest. What's that look like? Well, on earth, under the sun, it looks like good food, good friends and family, a spouse you adore, and work that matters. In heaven, over the sun, it looks like the way Isaiah paints the picture. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. Amen.